That lawyer was an expert, you know. Everyone agreed. When he spoke, people listened. When he was around, people sought him out. When he walked into the synagogue, heads turned and fingers pointed, and everybody said, oh yeah, here's a guy who knows what he's talking about. He was an expert. Everyone said so, not just his mom and his dad, like moms and dads always do, but everyone agreed that this lawyer was an expert in the law. And that meant he was subject to the temptations of experts. Now, before I say anything bad or negative about experts, it's good for us to remember that expertise is a really good thing, isn't it? If we didn't have experts, our knowledge might be a a mile wide, but it would only be an inch deep, and you can't go swimming in that kind of knowledge. Expertise is a wonderful thing. If we didn't have expert farmers, we wouldn't eat much, would we? All of our food would be like the food that grows in my garden. Not quite right. Expertise matters. Expertise is important. But see, there is a danger in becoming an expert. We sometimes put it this way. When you have a hammer in your hand, all of life's problems look like what? Nails. Expertise and experts have a way of kind of narrowing things down, right? So it's not that their knowledge is a mile wide and an inch deep. It's more like it's a mile deep, but only an inch wide. And the expert is always tempted to think that he alone knows all the answers because he alone is the expert. And that kind of adds something to the temptation of experts. See, experts don't like competition. They're always on the lookout for rivals, for someone else who might be more of an expert. And if someone is more of an expert than the expert, well, then he's not an expert anymore, is he? And then who's going to pay attention to him? Who's going to point when he walks into the synagogue? And who, other than his mom and his dad, is going to tell him how special he is? I point these things out to you because I want you to think like this expert in the law, this lawyer, as our text puts it. And of course, when scripture talks about lawyers, we're not talking about those who work down at the courthouse in McCracken County. We're talking about those who are experts in the law of God, the law of Moses. This man came to Jesus as an expert. And he came to put Jesus to the test, we're told. Because see, when you're an expert and someone else seems to be more of an expert, you kind of have to knock them down a peg. So he comes to Jesus with a desire for a debate. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when you hear that question, what do you think? Is that a good question? Or is it what teachers would say a bad question? I think when we as Lutherans hear this question, we think, well, you can't do anything to inherit something, right? And so there is one way, I'll call it the hyper-Lutheran way, of reading this and saying, see, the guy is asking the wrong question. Doesn't he know? Doesn't he know that you can't do anything to inherit eternal life? Doesn't he know that you can't merit God's favor? Doesn't he know the difference between law and gospel? And I could preach a whole sermon on that. You've probably heard that in the Good Samaritan text. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't go down that road. In fact, this question seems to have been kind of a common question. It was asked of Jesus by another man, a rich young ruler. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want to point out to you today that this is not a bad 
question, not on its face. Now, it could be bad. The motive could be wrong. If the man is coming to Jesus and saying, how do I get brownie points with God? How do I earn God's love? Then by all means, Jesus should go nuclear on him, right? Don't you know? You can't earn it. You can't do it for yourself. That's why I have come. But suppose the man is asking it more along these lines. Good teacher, what does the Christian life look like? What is the meaning of my life? Why am I here Why has God given me this life, and why hasn't he just taken me up into heaven already? Why isn't the baptismal font a portal? And as soon as we pour the waters over the head of those who come to be baptized, why aren't they just taken right up, raptured into heaven? Why am I still here? That's a question we should all ask, isn't it? What are we here to do? What are we supposed to do? What does the faithful life look like, Jesus? That was the question that the rich young ruler put to Jesus. And it's also the question that we hear over and over in Scripture. When John the Baptist was baptizing, there were those who came to his baptism, and after they were baptized by him, they asked this really practical question. Okay, now what? What should we do now? And John told them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's the same kind of question that was asked of the apostles. What must I do to be saved Repent and be baptized. That's what Peter said on Pentecost. That's what Paul said to the Philippian jailer. They didn't say, this is a bad question. Don't you know? You can't do anything. They simply told them, here is what you do. Repent, be baptized, believe the gospel, and live in faith. It's not a matter of merit. If the man is looking for merit, if he's trying to earn God's brownie points, then yes, by all means, bad question. But you should ask this question. Why am I here? What does God want with me? Why doesn't he just take me away? Why doesn't he just lift me out of this valley of tears? Why does he put me here in Paducah, in St. Paul Lutheran Church? Why does he put me in my family, in this place? Why am I working this job? Is it just to make money? Or is there something more? Notice how Jesus answers. Not by saying it's a bad question, But Jesus points him to where he should look for the answer to that question. And he would point each and every one of you who ask that question, why am I here? What is the meaning of all of this? Jesus says, what is written? Now, think about how different that is than the way a lot of people in our world try to answer that question. What is the meaning of life? Well, if you ask 10 different people that question, you're going to get, of course, 10 different answers. And quite often, what people will come up with is what they feel, right? The meaning of my life is to do what makes me feel good. And that could be sort of, you know, kind of wild, riotous living, or it could be being a nice person, being kind. It could be being a good person, but I don't exactly know how to define that. I just do what feels right in my heart. Jesus does not direct this man to the heart. And he doesn't direct you to your heart either because the heart is deceptive. The heart is corrupt. The heart out of the heart comes forth all kinds of evil things. Jesus also doesn't direct the man to, well, take a survey and see what everyone else is doing. Quite often that's the way we live, isn't it? The propaganda all around us works, doesn't it? And the more you pay attention to it, the more it works. And so we can't help 
but be steeped in the world all around us and the things that the world loves, the things that the world desires, the things that the world values, lo and behold, it gets into us too, doesn't it? But Jesus doesn't say, test the world. Be like everyone else. Jesus says, what is written? Now, of course, the man knew that was going to be the answer, didn't he? And so he was ready to respond. What is written, Jesus says, how do you read God's law? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm an expert. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See how he has it memorized? He's like a confirmation student, right? All of you who are starting confirmation next week, you should learn from this lawyer, this expert, how to memorize these things. It's good to have this in your heart. Why are we here? Well, the man's not wrong to love God and to love your neighbor. St. Augustine, one of the great teachers of the church, even boiled it down further. He said, love God and do as you please. And we hear that and we think, oh man, that sounds good, right? Because we don't know what love really means. Love is not this cheap kind of thing, you know, feel kind of good about God and then do whatever you want. We hear that and think, oh boy, get out of jail free. I can do whatever I want. This sounds like a pretty good deal. I think I'll be a Christian. But this love of the Lord your God is not the kind of thing that you can check off in the morning. Okay, I did my quiet time for two minutes. Loved God, check. Think of it more in terms of loyalty. Be loyal to the Lord your God. Be devoted to the Lord your God. And love your neighbor as yourself. Be loyal to your neighbor. Be devoted to your neighbor. It may be a simple kind of an answer, right? Love the Lord and love your neighbor. But it is not a simplistic kind of thing. Because what Jesus means, what the lawyer means, what God means in his law is not cheap love. It is real, sacrificial love, love that is willing to spend for the other, love that is willing to lay down one's own life for the good of the other. Could have ended right there, you know. The man gave the right answer. He got what he wanted from Jesus, but not quite, did he? See, the whole reason that this man came to Jesus was not so he could recite the catechism to him. The whole reason that the man came to Jesus in the first place was to show that he was smarter than Jesus. I know that if I asked you this question, none of you would raise your hand. But have you ever wanted to be smarter than Jesus? I think it's a common desire. Of course, we would never say it. We would never admit it. We would never come out and say, yeah, I'm smarter than God. But which of us wouldn't like to make the rules for our own lives? Especially, you know, when God's rules press on us, when they limit us and stop us from doing the things that we want, which of us would not actually say, yeah, you know what? I'd like to make the rules around here. I'd like to be the expert. That's what this lawyer wanted. He wanted to show that he was smarter than Jesus, and he wanted everyone else to see it. And so he kept going. And who, Jesus, is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself, to prove that he was experter than Jesus, that he was more of an expert in God's law. And so he spoke of a limit, right? This is what the law was all about. It might sound like a strange question, but it's actually kind of in keeping with the law. 
When you actually read God's law, you find that Israel had all kinds of boundaries set up. There were all kinds of rules and regulations saying you can go this far but no further, and you can eat this but you can't eat that, and you can wear this but you can't wear that. And so it seems really in keeping with the heart of the law to say, now how far does this extend? Where is the boundary, Jesus? The law was established to limit things. The law was established to limit the spread of all kinds of impurities. The law was established and given by God to limit things like sin, to limit its spread. And so the people were not to be like the other nations. They were not to eat what the nations ate. They weren't to wear what the nations wore. And they were to set up these boundaries. See, the law was meant to kind of hold things in check, to hold death in check even. There were rules about what you could do with a dead body. You weren't supposed to touch it. You weren't supposed to touch someone who was half dead. After all, then death might get on you. It's kind of like cooties that way. If you touch it, you get it. And the law was meant to stop the spread or to at least slow it down. That's what the temple reminded the people every time they went, right? You might not know all of the rules of the temple, but most of us know, right? Most of us know that you couldn't just walk right into the temple. You could go so far, and then you had to stop. And then the priest could go a little bit further, but then he had to stop. And then the high priest could go all the way in, but only, only one day of the year, and only then when it was pitch black and covered in smoke and incense, See, the law set up all of these boundaries to limit the spread of sin and death. But see how Jesus steps over those boundaries. Which of these became a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? That's Jesus' last question. Not who is my neighbor, not who counts, not where is the boundary that I'm not supposed to cross, Right? But Jesus puts the onus back on the man. You must become neighbor to the man. And the answer, of course, is the man who had mercy. See, the law was there to hold death and sin in check. But the law couldn't actually deal with death and sin. It could only kind of hold it at bay. And so when Jesus tells this parable, I would have you hear him telling it this way this morning. He is putting everyone on notice. He's putting the priest and the Levite on notice. He's putting you on notice that here now is one who has come to do what the law could not do, to do what the law had been established to lead up to, but what the law could not do. That's why Jesus speaks of a priest and a Levite. To make this expert in the law think of everything that the priests and the Levites represented. All of those boundaries, all of those lines of demarcation, all of those separations. And Jesus points out that he has come to overcome them. Something has arrived to surpass those. That world is passing away, Jesus is telling us in this parable. And a new world is coming. In fact, is already here. Those old boundaries would be reconfigured through Jesus. Isn't it interesting, right? I don't know if you pay attention to these details and they strike you as odd, but it sure strikes me as odd. I don't know all there is to know about first aid. I'm not an expert, right? But I know enough not to pour wine on someone, you know? 
And dumping oil on someone's wounds, maybe some kind of salve or maybe some kind of balm would help, but it sure is odd, isn't it? That the man pours on wine and oil. Those are the kind of things that you offer at the altar. I know that much, right? What Jesus is showing is that that old stuff, the place of sacrifice, is no longer going to be found in the temple. It's no longer going to be a matter of pouring out wine and oil at an altar somewhere. But now, now through Jesus, this new world has come. This new world has come where we worship God, not by dumping out our sacrifices at an altar, but by loving those who are put right in front of us. Do you see how Jesus puts everyone on notice? He puts the priests on notice, he puts the Levite on notice, and he puts the expert of the law on notice. It's time to find a new expertise. It's no longer a matter of becoming an expert on all of the boundaries. Now Jesus promotes a new kind of law, the law of love. And of course, we knew that's what Jesus would say, didn't we? We knew even before this man came and told him because throughout his life, this is what our Lord displayed. Throughout his life, even without speaking these words, Jesus shows us this kind of love, this kind of love that reaches out to the world beyond the boundaries, this kind of love that overcomes the separation of death, this kind of love that puts an end to the reign of sin and of hell. Jesus, throughout his life, was doing this very thing. He was showing mercy on those who were half dead. He was showing mercy on those who would be dead if left to themselves. He was bringing an end to the reign of death and of sin and of hatred and of rivalry. He was overcoming all of these things. And so Jesus says what we knew he would say. He says exactly what we knew he was going to tell that man. Which of these three became neighbor to the man, the one who showed mercy? For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, says the Lord. I am not satisfied with the blood of goats and bulls, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and willing spirit he will not despise. And those who live in love have his blessing. Those who look for mercy, those who are experts in mercy, those who read God's word and look at how it can be applied in their own life in mercy and love, Jesus says, that's exactly the kind of disciple that I have come to create. Mercy on the dying, costly love. Mercy on those who are sick in whatever form that sickness takes. It's very unlikely, isn't it, that on our way home today, we're going to come across this exact scenario. If you do, by all means, pull the car over and help the guy who's half dead on the side of the road. But you also have to see how this teaching of your Lord applies beyond the obvious. How it applies to the way that you treat your children how it applies to the way that you interact with your coworkers, how it applies to the way that we live our life together as a congregation. Jesus wants to inculcate this expertise in all who would be his disciples, the expertise of mercy and love. And see, if you have that hammer in your hand, then by all means, let all of the problems be a nail and go ahead and whack them all. Whack them all with mercy and with love, even as your Lord has whacked you with his mercy and his love. He has poured out on you the wine and the oil of his grace and his mercy and his love. He renews it in you this very day in the gift of his own body and blood. He does all of this 
because Jesus is the expert in mercy and love who isn't afraid of a few rivals. In fact, he demands, he wants you to be a rival in this very kind of expertise. So become an expert in the mercy of Jesus. Become an expert in his love for yourself and for those he has put all around you. After all, that's why you're still here. To Christ be the glory now and always. Amen.